When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Yeah. I had to it's the Final Week Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and welcome to the second episode of our new book club. The first featured a combination of minor county, club and university cricket with Tom Hicks. This time around, we're right back up the top of the playing pyramid with the England Test team. The baseball era demanded a book be written of it, and the title was only ever going to be just that. And there's nobody better to have taken to the task than a couple of senior reporters who have been on the pod many times before. Lawrence Booth, the Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac editor and Daily Mail journal, and Nick Holt, the Telegraph's senior cricket correspondent. Drawing on their experience of working up close with England teams for a very long time, with the insight you can only get from speaking to all the key players, they've done a brilliant job with this. And as you would have noticed last week when Bazball hit the shelves, they've generated plenty of headlines from it too, both in England and Australia. I caught up with Holty in the tavern stand at Lords last week, with Lawrence with us down the line from India, where he's covering the World Cup. Enjoy. It's the Final Work Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins. I'm here at Lords and sat opposite me is Nick Holt. And down the Zoom screen in India is Lawrence Booth, who's with the England team covering the World Cup. And they're with us today to talk about their new book, Bazball, which is what it says on the tin. Uh, Holty, welcome to you. You've been on the show a number of times. I remember once was when we were talking about the white ball reset, the book you wrote that featured uh, the 2019 World Cup final. And I suppose it's only right you've written the red ball reset book as well. Hello. Hello, hi. Yeah, that was uh, probably helped form the idea to do Basball, actually. Um, having worked on Morgan's Men and seen the, the sort of uh, revolution England's white ball cricket, it was actually written differently, though. That book was written after the World Cup mm. and done in a couple of weeks because we had to hit a deadline. This was written during the Ashes with interviews taking place before the Ashes. So it took a, a slightly different form to, 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 to Morgan's men. But yeah, it was sitting at, at Trembridge watching Johnny Bairstow smash New Zealand around in the summer of 2022 thinking, so it's happening with this test team. <laughs> you know, what it reminds me of the one day side. Um, 
So that was the start of the idea. But of course, at that point, we didn't really know. It was just a flash in a pan and it only lasted a week or two. Um, and subsequently, it, it grew from there, really. Uh, Lawrence, for your part, you've kind of already done this. Like, we've done the uh, the baseball conversation with you through the uh, Wisdom Cricketers Almanac editor's notes this year. Having a, obviously, it's a much bigger bite of the cherry doing it this way, but uh, what uh, got you to the point where you're willing to put the work in required to write a book like this? Well, I felt, I mean, obviously, you do it in the Wisdom Editor's Notes and you've got maybe 1,000, 1,500 words to have a crack at it. Uh, and the story had moved on as well. And when, when Nick approached me about potentially being his co author, I thought, yeah, this is, this is a great opportunity to tell a story that I think gets perhaps misunderstood in some parts of the world. Um, people think baseball is slogging, uh, they think it won't work against them, etc., etc. I'm already hearing a lot of that here in India because England, of course, are touring India Jan, February and March for a five-test series, which in the eyes of many Indians will be the as- absolute acid test for whether baseball is worth the paper it's written on. Because our, our contention, I suppose, from speaking to all the people involved is that it's already worth the paper it's written on. It has, it has turned around England's fortunes. We, everyone knows the stats. One winner out of 17 under Joe Root. Um, you know, 13 out of 18 since then and a, a defeat by one run against New Zealand a beat, defeat by two wickets against Australia and one of the great Ashes series of all time let's face it we, you know, Holty says we were working on it as we went along we were petrified that it was going to turn into a, a 2-0 down we thought this is going to turn into a 3-0, 4-0 to Australia and will the story still worth, uh, be worth telling but it worked out well in the end and hopefully people still want to read about last summer's series just quickly, uh, Lawrence, with you being out there, we're recording this a few days after South Africa have pantsed England, and I've been reading for some, from some on, on social media and other places. One former uh, test cricketer actually saying that England's performance in India is proof that baseball doesn't work, which kind of reinforces your point from before that people can uh, disingenuously uh, write this up any which way they see fit. Uh, it, it's been, since that title was, well, that, that word was, was happened upon by Andrew Miller, it's been something that you can celebrate or beat up on depending on your perspective that's right and you know you know there are a lot of people around the world I've, I've covered England for over 20 years who, who quite like to see England do badly Let, let's let's face it they're no one's favorite second team uh, and so when England claim to be inventing a style of play people are quick to leap on that and, and hope it falls flat on its face and I mean today there's uh, you know we were in a press conference with Moeen Ali this is the day before England's game against Sri Lanka in Bangalore and one of the Sri Lankan journalists asked him whether this shows that baseball doesn't work effectively. And he said, well, baseball is test cricket. But actually, he, he kind of took the broader point, which was that England's white ball team have gone away from attacking. And that's what served their, their test team so well. Uh, Holtz, you start the book with a, a bit of an overarching recap of the Ashes series itself. And it reminded me of the first chapter of the previous book, actually, where you're going to quite a bit of depth with Steve James on what happened here at the, the World Cup final. But, you know, very early on, you kind of have to acknowledge what happened here at Lords with Bairstow and Carey. And I like that little bit where there's a distinction between those who interpret the law and those who wish to lean on the spirit and how you um, say that uh, those in Australia, uh, like the, the former in England, perhaps the latter, I think that's a very reasonable point, one that Jeff and I tried to make when we were recording about this at the time but also there's a a reference to the uh, the drinks that were held or not held rather at the oval after the after the test series and that story that Brett Sunderason broke and I can kind of sense from your words that that there there is a belief out there that that wasn't like a credible yarn that 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 the Australian press pack were um, had had leapt on that do you think that degree of animosity exists in real life still where there's a, a an Australian press back barracking for Australia and an English press back barracking for England or do you think that that gets over heights be it on social media or even in our own social circles oh I think it gets over I don't think we're barracking for England I think most journalists just want the best story 
That's the way I approach the job yep. anyway. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, denigrate Barrett's story. I've written much weaker than that down the years. Um, I, I think that I don't think there was any deliberate snub on England's part towards the Australians. I don't think. I don't actually know, but I, I think that they feel uh, that it was just an, a bit of a, an oversight and they actually met up later that night, uh, uh, later in the evening in, um, in, in a club anyway. But I think one thing it does show was that at that point, they were very much wrapped up in their own little world, their own little baseball bubble, um, and that they'd spent all of that time in the dressing room talking about the amazing journey that they'd all been on together, without using that word, baseball, obviously, because the coach bans it. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that, that it did show a little bit that England are totally wrapped up in themselves and the way that they play their game. And I think that just was probably behind the fact they didn't go for a drink in the dressing room with the Aussies mm. rather than any lingering animosity. I mean, I think apart from the Bairstow incident here, which was a complete freak, I've never seen anything like that in 20 years of covering Test cricket and probably never will again. I think apart from that, it was played in pretty decent, uh, cordial, relatively cordial relations mm. for an Ashes series. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And look, the, the way you, you structure this book, Lawrence, is you go back and talk to all sorts of different people about... McCullum and about Stokes and, and one of those, you know, you end up describing what Brendan McCullum's like bedroom looks like when he was a kid kind of thing, you know, what, what his um, South Dunedin upbringing was and how he sort of hit straight by necessity based on the way that he's, um, you know, the way that he's, uh, the way that he's um, backyard cricket looked, which is quite a familiar theme in books about players. But this one thing that he shares with Ben Stokes is having grown up in dressing rooms. He watched a lot of his dad playing at Albion Cricket Club. Of course, we know Ben Stokes' story with his old man playing uh, rugby league and how those two strong personalities grew up pretty quickly as young lads. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, they both, captain and coach, had to be singing from the same hymn sheet for a, an idea like Bazball to actually work. You know, they it, they it couldn't have someone a bit more conservative in either position because uh, they both had, both figures had to be strong. They both had to be self-sufficient. They're both, in both cases, their legacy had already to be established, which I think we can say it has been for, for, for both of them. And they had to have the respect of the players. So you had this sort of perfect storm. They're also starting from a very low base, as I mentioned earlier, one win out of 17. The idea that they had nothing to lose, essentially. Uh, and the players bought into that. And why wouldn't you? Because they essentially gave them a licence to go out and, you know, express themselves as the old cliche that we, we've heard a thousand times in the last sort of 18 months. Uh, and why wouldn't that work? You know, coaches throughout sporting history have talked about the importance of expressing yourself. But it, it, it turns out generally it's, it, it's easy, more easily said than done. You know, what Stokes and McCullum seem to have alighted on is a, is, a, is a method of actually putting it into practice uh, and that's been their greatest gift really you know they might be a bit standoffish with with the press they might not like to tell us exactly let any light in on the magic as they see it but but that, that is that is the, to their, the, the greatest credit to them really I think that uh, look maybe this would have worked anyway but coming from such a low ebb having that much license to do something different and Rob Key is clearly part of that by identifying Brendan McCullum when he comes into the job. Rob Key was working with us on radio in Pakistan when this all kind of started percolating and getting a set and there were stories written back from England of course that he was in the frame but taking on that job and having such a kind of hands-off approach himself and um, not being a you know sort of a pointy-headed type but being more a big picture vibes guy and, and thus you get two vibes guys in McCullum and Stokes for one of a better descriptor but Holti like going back to the way it felt immediately before that 2021-2022 we were you know, all on that Ashes trip as journalists and it was the most grim 
a horrible series that no one enjoyed. I can't imagine anyone other than the Australian cricketers enjoyed and maybe the Australian fans watching them roll over them so easily. But from a competitive balance perspective, England were absolutely nowhere. They were broken uh, and Joe Root had to lead them through all of that. And to get to Stokes and McCullum, you have to move on beyond Root and Silverwood, which was never going to be easy. No, and also it took them a little while as well because remember they went to the Caribbean after that um, and it got even worse there. They were playing very dull, unimaginative crickets. Uh, Chris Silverwood had already left, but Joe Root, in some ways, had had his position strengthened because England had left out Anderson and Broad, not because they weren't good enough, but because they wanted to give the captain perhaps more of a presence in the dressing room away from these two, should we say, uh, influential figures, <laughs> and sometimes perhaps can look at life a bit cynical and a bit negatively. Um, and I think that they wanted to give Joe perhaps more, uh, like I say, a little bit more authority, but it got worse in the West Indies. England, though, Carl Mayer's a big debt, actually, because he bowled us <laughs> West Indies to victory in Grenada, and really that was the final nail in the coffin for the root years. Now, that had to happen and of course uh, Rob Key comes in and the first thing he wanted to do was change the way that English cricket approaches test cricket and he'd always been an advocate for playing more positively as a player and as a pundit so that was always going to uh, influence who he chose as coach and I think the one thing that McCullum probably recognised when he arrived in England was that there's so much white ball talent in this uh, in English cricket and that might not be showing at the World Cup at the moment but it's still true why not get these players to play their natural game Mm. in Mm. test cricket and that's what he convinced them to do by taking away that fear of failure Ben Duckett is probably the prime example of that in that when he played for England in India under Alistair Cook in his last test he he was desperately just trying to block the ball and didn't really know which end of the bat was which and now you look at him and he's given that licence to attack and he's a different player. You, you, I mean, the, the bits you do in New Zealand to frame this up and to get a sense of the personalities, I think with um, McCullum, it's, it's impossible to avoid the comparisons to the team that he inherited in 2012 as captain and the, the lessons that will... The, the spirit in which he wanted them to play and not just like being good blokes and the no dickhead policy and all the rest of it everyone seemingly has got a no dickhead policy these days it's hardly revolutionary but the freedom that he wanted them to play with I mean there, there were some cues there we probably should have realised when McCullum took over that it was going to be a team that was going to play the way that it ultimately has Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just them being bowled out for 45 at Cape Town in what was his first test as captain that made him sort of recalibrate everything. It was the famous test match in Sharjah against Pakistan. News had come through of Philip Hughes' tragic death in Australia. And the test was delayed by a day. And McCullum said that they used those 24 hours to kind of reassess what cricket meant, what sport meant. And they went out the next day and scored something like 680 at a runner ball, something ridiculous like that. McCullum battered a, a massive hundred uh, and they won that game they didn't celebrate any of the wickets out of show of respect to um, to Hughes but they what they derived from that was a kind of template about how a fear a, a lack of a fear of failure essentially could inform a more exciting form of cricket and that's essentially what he's done with England he has removed successfully removed the fear of failure you look at a guy like Zach Crawley you know most people would have said he should not be picked against Australia in the Ashes. He hits the first ball for four. Now, usually England are on the wrong end of the first ball scenario in Ashes <laughs> series. Crawley makes a statement. Sure, England go on to lose that game, but the statement's been made. And then, he, of course, he plays the innings of the series at Old Trafford. McCullum's sitting there. He'd, he'd have every right to say, I told you so. But it was only by sticking with the guy who he, he had essentially removed the fear of failure from that England fought their way back into that series and 
who knows, might have won had it not rained in Manchester, but let's not go there. I think the one thing that they've done that's really important is they've actually made England a good test team to watch. Now, I've sat through some very, very dull English test cricket over my career. Some of it, I, 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 you know, is, has been painful to watch at times. But this England test team, you want to sit down, you want to see how they play. You know, you want to see what's going to happen next because you genuinely don't know what's going to happen next and sure they are going to have some absolute disasters at times and maybe in India this winter we'll see a couple of those collapses but they're going to be fun to watch and they're going to be interesting and I was here at the MCC a week or two ago interviewing the chairman for the Telegraph and um, they were saying that uh, the ballot for next year's tickets at Lords next summer are the highest they've ever experienced outside of an Ashes series. Right. Now, England are playing Sri Lanka and West Indies next, and no disrespect to them, they're not the biggest draw card these days, but people want to watch this England test team because they know they're going to be entertained. Right, yeah, and look, and Stokes will be front and centre of that, of course, as captain as well. We were talking on the podcast yesterday about him taking a one-year contract, but that being more a strategic holding platen rather than indicating that he's finishing up anytime soon. And, like, Stokes wasn't part of those England teams that started 2021 so dismally. I remember sitting here in the tavern stand and watching that fifth and final day against New Zealand, one rare day that I wasn't working. Then the following week at Edgbaston when they were... They were done over in, I don't know, what was it, seven and a half sessions or something like that where New Zealand were just so strong and England looked so fragile that Stokes himself, though, was fragile as well. We know now, we know the story of for the documentary that was made and released last year, which, you know, was a pretty favourable depiction of a number of things in Stokes' life, but what came through very clearly was that it could have gone either way for him, Lawrence. He could have easily ended up, you know, I don't know, maybe a T20 circuiteer, maybe, you know, drop in here and there and play some series, but the idea of him captaining England, initially at least, I didn't think that would work. I thought, well, you're asking a lot of a guy who is maybe not going to end up playing much more international cricket, but this has been the new lease of life for him and he's continued to be that big game player all the way through this stretch, even if he hasn't been the most consistent batsman going around. Yeah, and I think the question is, could this success have happened if Stokes hadn't tasted the various lows that he'd experienced in the previous couple of years? You know, we speak to Mike Brearley in the book and he, he has, you know, he's a psychoanalyst now. So he, he wonders whether, you know, Stokes, the way Stokes has played was a reaction to what really calls his depression, for, for want of a better word. You know, his dad had died, he'd been through the, the Bristol court case, um, faced the prospect of jail, probably in his own mind, for, for, for a while there. Um, uh, and then his finger injury, and, and he just didn't have time to process this all. There was, of course, the, the, the horrible story in The Sun about um, an incident, well, a horrible experience his mum had gone through before Stokes was born. So all these things uh, sort of weighed on him. And I think without, without those desperate lows, and the sense that he did get a new lease of life, it's possible that he, he couldn't have thrown himself into the, the Basball project with as much verve as he did. And of course, McCullum really suggests had gone through his own period of, of depression, in a sense, losing, uh, falling out of love with the game. So he too could approach this sort of free swing, if you like, with, with, um, with a bit of gusto. Um, you know, the, the joke's always been that McCullum took on the harder job. Well, actually, in a sense, it was an easier job because there was nothing to lose. He, he turned down the white ball gig. McCullum bumped into Mott, by the way, Matthew Mott, in the hotel the other day, and Mott joked with him that actually he, he'd, got the, he'd got the easier job in the end. And Mott's the one who's had to stay, keep England at the, at the top of the white ball tree, and it hasn't worked. But, yeah, I think without those lows, perhaps the highs wouldn't have been tasted quite so emphatically. Just quickly, what, what was the um, idea behind speaking to Mike Brearley? It's a great, it's a well-placed chapter because, again, you kind of go through each of the Ashes test matches and splice them in, but you, you find other ways of writing colourful chapters, often with players, but then Mike Brearley jumps off the page and it's a very readable chapter, Lawrence. Where did that come from? Well, it's just that, I mean, if you look at man-managers in, in Eng among England test cricketers, who, who are the 
who are the captains who uh, read their players the best and got the best out of their players? Now, Brearley has obviously held up, you know, the, the, yeah. had a degree in people, as Rodney Hogg famously <laughs> said. Uh, a great test record, OK, he never played West Indies, whatever. He got 18 wins, four defeats, and he knew how to read people. Now, you don't, he was in that test team with an average of, what, the low 20s. But he, got, he stayed in because he seemed to get the best out of people, both him and 81 being the classic. So Stokes, in a very different way, very different kind of guy, has got the best out of his players. And I think he has an, he has an instinctive understanding and belief, like Brearley does, that you have to understand and sympathise with the inner life of your players to get the best out of them. So I thought, well, we've got to speak to Brearley because it'd be fascinating to see what his take on this what this whole thing is. Of course, he, he's slightly more conservative about it. He's full of praise for Stokes, but he, I think he, he thought they probably shouldn't have uh, declared at Edgbaston on the first night, that kind of thing. They're a bit gung-ho at Lords, etc., but, you know, th- those are fairly common views. In, in general, he was he's 95% behind what Stokes has done. And so it's fast. you know, sometimes old cricketers are accused of whinging about the modern day players, but Brearley's fully behind Stokes. Even some of the most um, supportive pundits of baseball were critical of the declaration. I remember well, I uh, stood next to one of them. The way in which Stokes himself was able to I don't know if being liberated is the right word, but you know, having had those depressive tendencies and having had that rough time in 2021 that is now well documented, to be so like phlegmatic, I don't know, that might be the right descriptor, with someone like Jack Leach and enabling Jack Leach, who didn't play at all through 2021, to have the confidence to go out and basically fail, right? Like saying to him, it doesn't matter if you fail, you're still part of my team. Um, it's interesting that Stokes had that club in the bag and that, that's proven to be maybe his greatest asset. I think it's a, it's a sign of, of uh, Ben's intelligence, his emotional intelligence that he can read people so well. I don't think we've had a captain England have not had a captain probably since Michael Vaughan who's been so good at dealing with individuals and dealing with people and getting the best out of them. Uh, one of the points about Stokes I think is that the players are slightly scared of him. There is always this hint with Stokes that you never really know how he's going to react. And yep. The one question we kept asking all of them was do you ever say no to Ben? And not many of them actually answered, well, actually, I do, do say no to Ben because they're, they're, they're little, there's that little bit of, uh, of intimidation with him. You can have a lot of empathy, but that's actually as a captain. But it's no good unless... Also, they're a little bit scared of you and what you want, what you may, how you may react. And that's a point that Mike Brearley made to Lawrence mm. in, in, in that interview. It's no good having empathy without that inner steel as well. And Ben has that blend. He's also tactically pretty good sometimes he may he's gone a little bit too far as we saw at times during the ashes but tactically he's pretty sharp and yeah I think it's just that way of reading players and he looked at Jack Leach and he thought this is a guy who just needs his tyres pumped all the time because he's naturally a pretty down on himself and pretty dour and and uh, about his cricket um, he's also gone through a lot of personal problems with his his Crohn's disease and stuff during his life as well and had a bit of a battle to get there so I think Ben thought right we're going to make this guy feel a hundred you know a million dollars every day and that's what he did and one thing they did was always get him to have the last word in team meetings in the dressing room which you perhaps wouldn't expect Jack Leach to be the man who has the last word but that's one thing they thought well we'll do that that invests him in the team and makes him feel a big part of it you always come across these little nuggets when writing a book like this or reading a book like this that's one of them another with Jack Leach is that he gave a a speech about the Queen the day after the Queen died didn't have that on my bingo card (laughs) Uh, you know and Alex Lee sledging Virat Kohli about you know I've had two kids in the time that you've um, last made a test hundred or however the line runs I mean that must be really fun when you um, stumble upon something like a little nugget that isn't probably strong enough in its own right to be a news line in the newspaper that you know it'll help 
bring the book to life. That's right, yeah. And you get those, but I mean, we're lucky because we, most, all of the players gave their time freely and willingly. This is not, uh, this is not an ECB book. They didn't have to do it, yep. but they did. And of course, it's by talking to different players, they, 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 those little nuggets will come out. Somebody will say, well, you never guess what Alex Lee said to Virat Kohli, because obviously Lee's never going to offer that up. When I phoned him up, I had to think, you know, I had to ask him, but really, and sort of get that, get that, that line out of him. So that, that's the, the sort of fun side of it. The other nugget that we, we unearthed was Moen Ali um, using the, the honey, Manuka mm. honey on his finger. Now, of course, that was never going to hold for uh, the book because he was going to talk about it in press conferences. So, um, but, so we, we obviously wrote that for our, for our respective newspapers. But it, it, it was one of those that just shows you the little nuggets are out there. And, of course, there will be many more that will come out in the years to come as well during this next few years with England and baseball because it's just going to happen because of the way they play and the way they are off the field as well. There may be a high demand for MCC tickets next year, Lawrence. Also a high demand for the Manuka honey. Can't get any for my spinning finger at the moment. It's sold out everywhere. So you guys have contributed to that by pumping. You should be getting a, you know, a little, a little, um, a, a little cut from the company at some point, something like that. Mark Wood uh, offers. You know, Mark Wood's such a great quote machine, isn't he? And you know, he's always going to give great colour. But one bit from him that illuminated the bowling side of baseball, which we don't talk about too often, right? We we talk about the batting side and people can apply it the way they will. I heard Nathan Lyon the other week saying they never baseballed us in the series because I think he interprets baseball as going out and batting in a in a T20 fashion when uh, I don't think many others see it in quite the same way but bowling and the way they choose to go about it those aggressive fields that McCullum would set in one day cricket as captain that applied to Stokes as test captain regardless of the circumstances and Wood uh, refers to a time when he bowled four overs and had 20 runs hit from him and he gets into the dressing room a bit down on himself and there's McCullum pumping him up saying whoa you bowled so quickly though imagine what the tail enders will be thinking in the other room they'll be shitting themselves and you know again that, that gives a mindset to the they don't really care if they concede runs so long as they take their their 20 wickets quickly enough yeah everything's about a positive spin I mean we, we, there were so many stories we probably didn't use half of them about that, you know, someone goes back in the dressing room disappointed, and McCullum's the first in there with his arm round, just going, "You were brilliant, mate." It's like you got a sort of three-ball duck or whatever. It's like keep attacking. Um, uh, you know, it, I mean, Wood was good on the um, the Multan Test match where Stokes gives him yeah. the ball. They, it, Sri Lanka, Pakistan were getting pretty close to chasing about 350. Lunch was approaching. They were five down, 280 for something like that, and Stokes just says to Wood. Give me something, and that—that that is the extent of his captaincy. I mean, he brings in—he brings in a leg slip, so he wants him to aim at the sort of, you know, the the armpit, and, and hope that they and, and and it works a treat. And Wood bounces them out. Okay, one of them, one of the catches that Pope took was perhaps questionable, but nevertheless, you know, Wood at that stage was on his feet, and he says. I, I'd have run through a brick wall for him, which was another phrase that got that sort of emerged repeatedly during during our interviews. And so, a lot of the time, you know, it, it's simply about Stokes's presence and seizing the moment and knowing who to place under the microscope and getting the response he wants. Now, that is an X-factor aspect of captaincy that not everyone has. I think Root certainly didn't have it. Well, I was going to ask about Root, Halty. Like... He's a he's a brilliant figure in all of this because of what he's done with the bat since Stokes has taken over. He's so fucking magnanimous, right? Sometimes what rude to say, why couldn't they play that way under me? Of course they couldn't, right? The, the conditions were different. The presets were aligned a different way. But, you know, Root's gone on to be an even more exceptional batsman. He, he, there were, he was trending this way in the last year of his captaincy career as well, of course, had an extraordinary 2021 with the bat. But into 2022, those three centuries, one of which was out here, the, the first win of the baseball regime, which didn't feel too baseball at the time, given they played quite conservatively, but um, did 
chased down 276, I think it was. Most of that on the final day with Root steering the ship in tough circumstances, tough conditions, good bowling lineup that New Zealand had on the park that week. But yeah, for Root's part, you know, I'm interested as to how he responded when you asked him about whether he's scared of Ben Stokes because it seems like the love between those two is real. Uh, we interviewed Joe Achi here uh, on the seats over there just before the uh, first test of, la- of the of the summer, and um, the sort of question to ask him was, why? So you're kind of hinting around, why didn't you play like this? You know, without yep. actually saying that. Um, and the question to him was, do you have any regrets? And, and it was the first time I'd heard him say, yes, I do. And anyone who says they don't have any regrets are lying. And I do have regrets and I should have been stronger. You know, we started to play aggressively when I first became captain against Sri Lanka. They won a series in Sri Lanka 3-zip and they, they batted at four and a half and over, whatever it was, and, and looked like a team with a method. And of course, as soon as they started losing, they changed. Mm. Whereas... Stokes and McCullum, you know that they will keep playing the way it is and if you want to get rid of us, fine, somebody else come along and do the job. So that was the question to Joe, why, why didn't you play like that? Why didn't you have a crack? And he said, well, I did and I really regret that I didn't do it. Um, the Stokes root uh, friendship is key to all of this, really. Joe has become a very trusted uh, friend to Stokes, uh, an advisor now on the field. And I don't think anything probably epitomises the change in England's approach than seeing Joe Root play that reverse scoop <laughs> uh, in Test cricket. Yes. Uh, and 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 nothing. You know, he, even this sort of guy who's grown up in Yorkshire, playing the game properly, the way that the traditions of the batting in Yorkshire uh, has approached playing basketball. That, 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 to me, in a nutshell, is what is the change that's happened. It was that week, wasn't it, at Nottingham, where he makes the big hundred in the first innings. We all think about what Bearstow and Stokes do on in the, well, the final session of the Test match, but the foundations are laid by Root playing the way he did, and I think it was the most fours ever in a, in a Test match or, or something ridiculous. Coming full circle to Bearstow, Lawrence, I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating figure in his own way isn't he Johnny he's been playing international cricket for such a long time yet he's got such a thin skin which is in itself interesting I'm naturally drawn towards someone like Bairstow because his vulnerabilities are always out there for everybody to see and it makes him a really interesting figure to study and write about and so on um but, uh, you know, you were able to get the lines out of him about the incident here at Lords. No one else was able to. Uh, and it's real well written as well. You had about, what, five bites of the cherry before he opened up and gave some, what I would say in hindsight, fairly ill-considered comments, actually, which have been serialised in the paper yesterday. But still, it, it, him coming out and talking to you guys, you must have seen it as something of an achievement, as something of an achievement um, from, a, from a, you know, an interviewing technique perspective. Yeah, I mean, Besto was one of the hardest ones to get hold of. I mean, I, I approached him at the start of the summer uh, to, to, to let him know that we wanted to speak to him and he said yeah yeah sure and then the summer dragged on and things started to go wrong for him you know he was dropping catches missing stumpings he was getting the blame for what happened at Edgbaston the Ben Folks ultras were dancing around yes. in, you know, in outrage and then of course he, he pulls off that great catch of Mitchell Marsh at Old Trafford diving low to his right sort of you know full length sits on his behind holds the ball, ball up in triumph then he batters the Australian seamers for that, for that 99 um, and something changes, and then we finally got hold of him before the Oval Test. And of course, they, they, it was you know two one at that stage, and they, they could still square the series. And he was in a pretty good mood, but it did take a lot of getting out of him. I was like, oh, not not giving up here. Uh, th- this story won't be complete without Bestow's take on the stumping. And look, I mean, I've, you know, some people on Twitter have been asking Holty and me whether 
whether we agree with his perspective. And I, I said, well, it's kind of irrelevant what we think. The point was to recreate the drama, to get inside Bairstow's mind. I mean, we do make the point in the book that the, the dismissal was perfectly legitimate. No, no, no issue with that. Bairstow's take on it is fascinating. I think it says a lot about his kind of, the way he's justified it to himself. I mean, at the time when it happened, I thought, Johnny's been dozy. You know, Carey has, Carey has noticed that he leaves his crease too early and he's taken advantage of it. The fact was that that then paved the way for one of the most astonishing couple of hours of the series, even though England's defeat was looking absolutely nailed on anyway. Weirdly, from that moment, even though they went 2-0 down, you felt they had a hold in the series. It was completely bizarre. Mm. They were 2-0 down, and you felt it was a very vulnerable 2-0 lead, especially with Nathan Lyon going off. I think without England's kind of self-righteous anger about what happened to Bairstow, maybe they wouldn't have channeled it in the same way. I mean, Stokes and Cummins were still being asked about it going into the Headingley test, if you remember, the third game, which was back-to-back with Lords. It kind of developed this narrative of its own. Alex Carey fell off a cliff. Um, he's now been you know, dropped after one game in the World Cup too. There were all kinds of subplots going on. Bairstow seemed to be at the centre of them all, getting angry and, I would say, paranoid at times about everything that's going on. Even now at the World Cup, he's not happy that this serialisation has taken place. You know, he, 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 he's unimpressed. He, he didn't see that talking to us for a book might turn into a newspaper piece. It's that kind of thing. He's always angry and it always seems to bring the best out of him. <laughs> and let's not forget, if not for Bearstow and what he achieved last summer, maybe you're not writing that, that book in, in the first place. It's his success which underpins that extraordinary summer of 2022. As we kind of wind down this conversation, fellas, I mean, there's a, a nice piece towards the end in the book which refers to sort of something you've touched on a bit, Lawrence, in, in the Almanac about whether baseball might be just what Test cricket needs. I mean, I think it has been, but with... The current running in the other direction, we all know the direction of travel with international cricket right now. We all know how bloody depressing the whole thing can be when you zoom out and think about what this might all look like in five or ten years' time, probably five. But the extent to which what's happening with the England Test team now might put the brakes on it, might change it all together, might make Test cricket around the world a product which could be more commercially viable. I mean, do we have that belief between the three of us? Do we think that baseball actually is, per the words of, uh, who was it, Stokes at the time, going to save Test cricket, Halty? It's a chance. It's an opening, isn't it? You look at um, teams around the world, like look at the way South Africa are playing in this World Cup. Yeah. And you, it frustrates you. You think they've got the talent. They've got that. Why can't they perhaps be a bit more positive in Test cricket? We saw them... So, you know, subside very easily against Australia yep. last year and against England eventually. Um, West Indies have got so much white ball talent as well. I know they're not at the World Cup, but they've still got that. They've still got that talent there. Could they be a little bit more aggressive in, in, in Test cricket? Now I know there are, England have got advantages. They play more Test cricket. They can afford the best coaches. There's plenty of money around the team, so it's easy to not fear failure if you're Ben Stokes and you can walk out and get a million-pound IPL deal. So I know that they've got those benefits, mm. but but maybe, just maybe, there is a chance other teams will look at this and think, well, why not? And let's try and entertain the supporters because it's eventually, essentially, that's what England are trying to do is entertain people, and, and they've succeeded. Lawrence, I think we're, we're two of the most cynical people in the industry around this question. Um, you know, where, where are you landing on it? Well, I, I, Pakistan have been an interesting case study. I mean, they've, they've called their new approach the Pakistan way. You know, they, they, they went to a training session before a tour of Sri Lanka and uh, you couldn't play more than two dot balls in a row, otherwise you're out in training. And they went to Sri Lanka and scored at four or five and over and won. And, and they, that, that was a direct consequence of their 3-0 defeat by England a year earlier when they saw that England were, had, had attacked them and, mm. and, and spooked them. I think what will be fascinating is 
if Australia or India adapt their game. Now, I don't think India will because, you know, on home pitches with their spinners, why, why would they need to change? And, and they will take great delight if they do beat England uh, in the new year to say, well, you know, you, you tried your best, but it was never going to work against us. Australia, I think last summer were perhaps shown up as, a, as surprisingly, it's usually the, the boots on the other foot in Ashes battles as the more conservative team, led by a more conservative captain in Cummins. I mean, he's world-class Hall of Fame bowler and a, and a top man. But his, his captaincy, I thought, left, left a, a fair bit to be desired, especially at Old Trafford, where, they, you know, ha, had Australia lost that game, it would have been interesting to, what the blowback would have been. Instead, Cummins could sit there and say, we've, we've retained the Ashes, even though he did so a bit sheepishly. I think it'll be tough for Australia to attack their game because of what England have done, for obvious reasons. They're not going to sit there and go, oh, yeah, we'll copy what the old enemy are doing. But I think it's, it's been an interesting insight into what Test cricket can be. And I think what Test, and it also into what Test cricket has to be in order to survive. I mean, we're already getting this debate at the 50 Over World Cup about the future of one-day cricket, for goodness sake. Mm. You know, as if, as if one-day cricket has suddenly, has suddenly got its turn in the spotlight and it's the new victim of T20 cricket. Well, both... OD, I, I accept that not, not every team has played 50 Over Cricket very well at this World Cup. But I think, you know, if, if they can take... If we can all take the T20 attitude into both ODI cricket and Test cricket, then Test cricket's got a chance, but it does need other boards outside the big three to invest in it. Lawrence Booth, Nick Holt. The book is called Baseball, of course it is. It's published by Bloomsbury. You can get it in all the usual places. We'll have a link in the show notes through to Bloomsbury. Uh, and uh, I encourage uh, everybody to go out and read it because it's a, a considerable contribution to the conversation around what this England Test team are doing. Congratulations on it. Hope it goes well. Thank you. Thanks, Carla. Thanks to Lawrence and Hulte for making time for us when doing the press rounds last week. They were excellent as always. As I said at the end there, we'll have a link in the show notes so you can buy Baseball directly from their publisher, Bloomsbury. We'll be back with another edition of the Book Club in November. And of course, it won't be long before there's another episode or 10 uh, dropping in the wider final word feed. If you're enjoying what we're doing, it'd be great to have you part of it uh, and our wider community at Patreon. This show is our full-time job these days and that's simply not possible without our listeners backing us in and we love them all for it. Uh, You submit a pledge, then you feature on our history show, which drops each weekend, and then you get entry to our Discord channel. And for anyone who hates how cricket is talked about online, which should probably be most of us, this is the place for you. Our Discord channel is, as we say all the time, the nicest corner of the internet. Just jump on at patreon.com forward slash the final word and you're away. All right, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Bye. I had to go. Oh